Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Welcome to Gateway. May I add my welcome to that of Megan? Last week, we began a short series <coughs> looking at the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon of all time preached by the greatest preacher of all time. So we're gonna look at the Sermon on the Mount for the next three weeks. Three years ago, we took, a, took the opportunity to look at the Beatitudes. So this time, the plan is to scoot around the Beatitudes and concentrate on what else is contained in this most incredible of passages. I want us to read together this morning, Matthew chapter five, verses 13 to 16. It says these words, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. On the 18th of June, 2018, a couple of years ago, the preacher, the pastor, the incredible author, Tim Keller, founder of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York, was invited to attend and to speak at the National Prayer Breakfast in the United Kingdom. It was held at the Great Hall in Westminster, and all the good and the gentry of British, politi- of British politics were there. And he spoke on this passage that we're going to look at today. Tim reminded the parliamentarians, the MPs, the Prime Minister, the leader of the opposition, the policy makers of Westminster, that the Christian church had a very powerful, profound, and positive impact on society since its formation, just after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He went on to say that Western Europe, the United Kingdom, and America had been changed for the better by Judeo-Christian values. Tim Keller urged his audience to remember that the church needs to be the church in order to keep society going. In the sermon, on the Mount, after reminding his listeners that they live as part of an upside-down kingdom, Jesus exhorts his followers to be salt, to be light. And it's just worth reiterating at this point again for those who perhaps weren't here last week, that these words were spoken by Jesus primarily and foremostly to his disciples, not a wider global audience, but to his followers, to those who had chosen to follow him, part of the faith community. The challenge was not, if I can put it in these terms, for those people out there, it is for us in here. This is a call for us to be salt and light. For those who study such things, and in this case, culture and social history, it is virtually unanimously agreed that in the 1960s was the most defining decade in the last 100 years in the Western world more so than 1940, more so than the First World War or the Second World War. The swinging 60s, as they were called, as we know, saw such bands as the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, and the Beach Beach Boys, and through them, they brought a social, 
cultural, sexual revolution through music. Recreational drugs were synonymous with the 60s and had become commonly available, the consequences of which we still see today. With images of Woodstock Festival presenting people high on marijuana and LSD, these being widely televised and seen by a worldwide audience. Such behavior was not only applauded, but welcomed by many. It was a time when people began to challenge and question authority, something that would have been unheard of years before. The Vietnam War fully ignited in the early 1960s, and unprecedented protests and marches against the government were seen across the Western world. Like I said, unheard of before. Fashion also mirrored the changes that was happening socially. And in the 1960s, the mini skirt became the epitome of the fashion of that day. By the late, late 1960s, the contraceptive pill was legalized for both married and unmarried women. The 60s opened the door to a cultural revolution that had unprecedented before and probably unprecedented until the last 10 or 15 years through the change that we now see that's come through the mobile phone. Why all this social commentary, Chris? Good question, and I'm pleased that you asked. In 1959, the date is significant in light of what we're about to look at. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was the pastor of a church in central London called Westminster Chapel, it was a mega church before mega churches were even titled. It was one of the biggest churches that had been seen in London in the UK. And in today's terms, it would have been absolutely huge. He began to preach and what he believed to be a sermon series in response to what the Holy Spirit was calling him to preach and something that he felt deep down in his heart. He felt that the Holy Spirit was prompting him to speak on the Sermon on the Mount and to speak to his people. Just before the floodgates of so-called liberation and chaos were about to be opened across Europe, the United Kingdom, and the whole of the Western world, he sensed in his spirit, he sensed in his soul, that there was a prophetic call, there was a prophetic challenge that needed to be made to the church to be ready for what was about to happen. He did not know what was gonna happen, but he felt, 1959, that this was gonna be what he was gonna speak on, and he spoke on it for quite some time. He didn't know it, but the world was on the cusp of a revolution. Lloyd-Jones, in feeling that something was about to happen, wanted to prepare his people for whatsoever, to enable them to live well and to live how Christ would have them live. And this is what he says. I do not think it is a harsh judgment to say that the most obvious feature of the Christian church today is, alas, its superficiality. That judgment, that judgment is based not only on contemporary observation, but still more on contemporary observation in the light of previous epochs and eras in the life of the church. So he decided that the most profound and most powerful way that he could both challenge and equip his people for what lay ahead was to teach on what we know as the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount reminds us that we have a distinctive, clear purpose here on earth that needs to be carried out in the light of the challenges that people face today in our society. That we be willing to be present and open to what the Holy Spirit wants to do within us and to meet the challenge that is out there. 
Why? Because out there, there is an enemy that is set about who wants to destroy and bring destruction to every single human being on the face of the earth. And we are called, we are called to respond, we are called to equip, we are called to be salt and light in the light of what is happening in our society, in our world today. There is a fight on for the lives of our culture, of our nation, and for our world. And if we sit back and do nothing, well, nothing will happen. I am constantly challenged in my own life by the words of Jeremiah 2, verse 13. When Jeremiah, in speaking to the nation of Israel about 606 years BC, when he says these words, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out systems for themselves, broken systems that can hold no water. He challenges the people of Israel over two things. They have forgotten him, and they are doing their own thing. It was a very real challenge that this prophet, who was known for bringing some incredible challenges to his people, you have forgotten me, you have forgotten the source, and you have forgotten what life is truly about. You have forgotten why I have called you. I have to confess that I find it always a real challenge to my own life when I read those verses that sometimes in the busyness of my life and for me in daily ministry as I go about the things that I believe that God has called us to do, it is easy to just to keep on keeping on doing what you think is right and good things. Sometimes I know that the challenge from the Holy Spirit is to, to me is to stop and he says to me, let's have a talk. Let's have a conversation. What are you doing? Is this really connected to what I have for you in your life? It is easy for me to slip into automatic mode to do what I need to do, to do good things, to deal with the urgent rather than the important, that I have to be reminded and pulled back by the Holy Spirit that he is the source of my life, that he is the source of what I do, he directs me in what he has called me to do, and he himself is the giver of life to reconnect and to recalibrate with him. You see, some 600 years later, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and he says, I am the vine, and that his father is the gardener, and that they are to abide in him. Along with these words to abide with him, he adds these challenging words, you are my disciples if you do what I have commanded you to do. The Sermon on the Mount contains many of the things that Jesus requires of us, his followers, to live a life well lived, which we touched upon last week. It was relevant in first century Palestine, it was relevant in the late 1950s, and it is relevant, I believe, for today, that we be counter-cultural, that we be salt and light. One of the most obvious and clear truths we see and learn from the Sermon on the Mount is that we are in to engage with the world and not to run away from it. Jesus challenges the notion that we are to live dispatched and away from the world. I get greatly concerned when I hear people or when I read articles or when I read books about people who advocate that the people of God should step back from society, that they should step back from the world and even actually encourage disengagement. My reading of scripture, this is totally unbiblical and not what scripture says and it's really concerning when I hear it. It might seem easier to do this, but it isn't something that we are called to do. How can we influence if we are not engaged? How can we influence if we are not purposeful? How can we be salt and light if we are not interacting 
with the world. You might see the church, one writer says, a guy called Rick Rousseau, a pastor from Colorado, says these words, the church is called to be separate in lifestyle, but never to be isolated from the world. It seeks to influence salt, light, and leaven don't work very well from a distance, which I thought was a good way of putting it. The Lord's Prayer, for example, presupposes engagement with the world. In Matthew 5, verses 17 to 48, which we will come back to next week, Jesus grounds spirituality in very real situations and in relationships around us. And next week we will look at our sexuality, how we think, how we treat others, how we handle criticism. But it's all rooted in reality. Let's come back to verses 13 to 16, which we read earlier. Salt and light. These are simply incredible words, not only for the truth, the teaching, and the challenge that they bring, but because of to whom they were spoken. When he says, you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world, he is speaking mainly to ordinary, the poor, the working class, the middle class, who live on the edge of society, who carried on their daily business without fuss, without notice, without fame, who just got on with life and did what was in front of them. He wasn't speaking to the upper echelons of society, the politicians, the policy makers, or if I can put it like, that, like this, those on the top of the tree. In fact, he is speaking to those on the bottom of the tree. He is speaking to those to whom the religious and the politicians of those days had very little time for, ordinary people. And if I can say it, men and women like you and me who have to bring up families, who have to go to work for a living, to have to put food on the table, who have to care for sick, for sick parents or sick children, who have exams to pass and deadlines to meet, who have to mourn and bereave those that we have lost, who have multiple roles to fulfill each day, who have to work out our, fancy, our finances and see if we can make ends meet, who have to juggle so much in life that we sometimes wonder if it is all worth it or even if we can cope with our lot for much longer. Jesus is talking to people like us. We are the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world. And it is a statement of position. It's a statement of purpose and a, st a statement of experience. Jesus knows that his listeners understand salt. That salt was to add flavor and to be a preservative. And a light was for showing people where to go and to help people stay out of danger and so much more. But it's the next bit that we may actually find a little bit awkward or uncomfortable or somewhat offensive, especially in our Kiwi culture. This next bit is gonna make us a little bit uncomfortable, I think, for many of us. Because if we were to read these verses in the, original, in the original Greek, we would read something that no English version that I know of really communicates it at all. It is written in what is known as the emphatic style, which means forcible, definite, and positive. And perhaps the closest we have to it is when we say about a sporting event or a political event, that was an emphatic defeat or an emphatic victory. This was a unique way of writing, and we find it here in Matthew 5. So to be accurate to this text, this is what Jesus is saying to his followers, but as I said, it'll probably make us a little bit uncomfortable. He's saying this, you and you only 
are the salt of the earth. You and you only are the light of the world. It's an emphatic style. It's not a general thing, it says you. You are the light of the world, or the salt of the earth. It's what we get in the Greek, and we have to be accurate to that. And sometimes we can find that a little bit uncomfortable. We may find that in somewhat offensive. If we think it's uncomfortable now or offensive, I wonder what it was like for the listeners when they heard that so many years ago, that they, Jesus is saying they, my followers, are the real salt of the earth. My followers only are the light of the world. The Jewish leaders would hear this, the priests would hear it, the scribes would hear it, and the Pharisees would hear it. And wonder what the response was of this group of ordinary people. Was he saying in this moment that there is no good anywhere else? Of course not. In fact, in later years, Jesus' half-brother, James, would teach in his letter that God is the father of all good things. But here, Jesus is going further. He is saying to them, the listener, that the way we behave, the way we live, the way we speak, respond, has dramatic effect on the world. It means that it is only the Christian communion, or the Christian community, I should say, that can shine something into this world that can bring lasting, eternal hope, and it's because of Jesus. No one else can do it, and we can only do it because of Jesus, because he left his throne, he came and he died and he rose again and he ascended, and because of that, we have this unique role of being salt and light, that because of what Jesus has done for us, there is something in our spiritual DNA that can change the direction of people's lives and society. Jesus is saying some pretty dramatic things into this situation. (laughs) Also, it is more than what we do. It's about something that we carry of God deep inside us. I don't really know how to explain this, so I'm just gonna use the word carry. You know, we carry something in God because our lives have been changed, because our, our lives have been transformed by the work and life of Jesus Christ. We now carry something of him wherever we go. Wherever we go into work or in the community, something of him goes with us, that indescribable sense of Emmanuel, God with us, and it is for us to be salt and light. It works the way out if we are doctors, if we are lawyers, if we are teachers, if we are nurses, if we are students, if we are street cleaners, if we are mums, if we are dads, or whatever it is, that, in other words, we find ourselves with something of God about us that we may not be able to tangibly realize, but nevertheless it is there. It works its way out in every word that we speak, every dollar we spend, every moment we invest with others, what we do with our families and friends, because we carry God with us, and therefore, we are salt, and we are light. You know, (coughs) if you're a parent, or if you've known parents of young children, this will make sense to you. I remember when our children were born, and they were this, beautiful mass of humanity that I didn't really know how to cope with. I mean, when they're a little bit older, I'm fine. When they bounce, or when they roll, or when they they can fight, I'm a great dad. But when they're this mass of humanity, the only thing that I could really do was worry. I was too scared, oh, I did, I picked them up and did all that stuff. I'll tell you a story sometime when hope isn't here. It was, um, (laughs) 
I remember Ben must have been six or eight months and Hope had gone out shopping. And she said, now, look after Ben. He'll be fine. There's his bottle. All be good. Ben and I, watching TV, we both fell asleep on the sofa and we both rolled off. <laughs> I think it must have taken me about two years to confess that one. And I'm not, I'm not even looking over there now. <laughs> you know, you have this tiny mass of humanity that I wasn't quite sure how to cope with. But I would find myself wondering and concerned about what sort of world they were going to live and grow up in. Would they be okay? All parents, you'll understand this. If you've known parents, you'll get this. Would they be okay? Would they survive? How would they get on? What sort of world would they have to live in? Would they have to go through war like their grandparents had gone through? How would they manage financially or someday? How would they manage without us, their mum and dad? This instinct, I believe, gives us a clue as to how God wants us to think about helping people to navigate life well. That we realize afresh that this world is in complete and utter darkness and it cannot save itself. Why otherwise does it need light? That we see people around us like these helpless babes with no way of surviving and living if we don't help, if we don't pray, if we don't intercede, if we don't get to know them, if we don't do spiritual battle on their behalf, that we see this as part of our manifesto from him to be salt and life when we're alive and wherever we live. That is our core. In 1639, in a cellar in Paris, a Frenchman by the name of Descartes was cold, hungry, and broke. He was a scientist, philosopher, mathematician, and much more. He was struggling with the great question of life, and he asked, how do I know I'm alive? And out of his philosophical anguish and thinking, we have the now famous statement, I think, therefore I am, which became the basis or the beginning of what we call the Enlightenment. He died in 1650, and the Enlightenment is, is seen, that period of starting in 1650, the age of reason. And so much good came out of that period. Education improved, medicine improved, healthcare improved, universities improved, and so much more good stuff happened. But also, so much that was bad flowed out of the, of the Enlightenment. There came a shift away, first and foremost, from God, especially in the countries of Western Europe. Added to this, the role and the very need of the church was questioned. And there came a shift away from the corporate, the community, to the individual and to self. The legacy of the Enlightenment is a fascinating study. I, me, became the center of this new way of thinking. What I want is more important than the collective. Therefore, I am more important than anything else. I am entitled to what I want, my pleasure, my satisfaction, my gratification, both physical and sexual. And over the following decades and about 100 years, we see a shift in what became the center of what was seen as important and fundamental to life. Such things as deism or no belief in God at all became prevalent. Re liberalism, reason, individualism, skepticism, all became major forces and players in the then known world. Science replaced religion. The individual became more important than community. And reason 
replaced faith and so on. And we're still living in the consequences of the Enlightenment. We touched upon it earlier in the 1960s and 70s. It was, I can do what I like, therefore I am. In the 80s especially it was, I accumulate wealth, so I am. I wonder what it would be today. I have, therefore I am. Or I am popular, therefore I I am. I am attractive, therefore I am. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, points to where real light, real life and hope comes from. The world around us is in incredible darkness and we are called to be a light to it. Ordinary people like you and me in university tomorrow, in the workplace, raising our children as grandparents going about our retirement, in the treatment of our neighbors. Let's treat people well as we carry something of God with us because at the center of who we are is the cross, is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that through us, people will encounter him and see something of his beauty and uniqueness. Paul says these words in 1 Corinthians, and it's a little bit of a long reading, but I want us to read it all, familiar words. This is so crucial. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 18, following says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews, they demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom for God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. For, it is for that, as it is written, that the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. None of you were very smart or bright, that's what it's saying. None of us were influential, but that's exactly the type of person that God chooses to be salt and light. Now let's go back to what we read earlier in the English Standard Version. We're going to read it in the, in the message, and it's just those three verses from Matthew 15. It says, I love Eugene Peterson's way with words. He says, let me tell you why you are here. Let me tell you why you are here. You're here to be salt seasoning that brings out the God flavors of this earth. If you lose your saltiness, how will people taste godliness? You've lost your usefulness and will end up in the garbage. Here's another way to put it. You're here to be light, bringing out the God colors in the world. God is not a secret to be kept. We're going public with this, as public as a city on a hill. If I make you light bearers, you don't think that I'm gonna hide you under a bucket, do you? 
I'm putting you on a light stand now that I've put you there on a hill and a hilltop on a light stand shine keep open house be generous with your lives by opening up to others you'll prompt people to be open to open up with God this generous father in heaven how we live shows we either live for God or not when what Jesus is teaching here on the sermon on the mount is not new we need to realize what he's saying, a lot of what he's saying here is not new, but its application is radical and therefore revolutionary. You see, the Old Testament has references to God telling his people, the nation of Israel, about their role as light and as salt. Just a couple of examples. First of all, first of all Isaiah 42 verse six says this, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for all the nations, that was what he wanted them to. And then we have a very vivid and dramatic um, experience of what salt does, and we find it in 2 Kings 2, when Elisha had just taken over from Elijah, and it says, now the men of the city said to Elisha, behold, the situation of this city is unpleasant, as my Lord sees, but the water is bad and the land is unfruitful. He said, bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then he went to the spring of water and threw salt in it and said, thus says the Lord, I have healed this water. From now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. So the water had been healed to this day according to the word what Elijah spoke. Those were part of their history. They would have known that they were light. They would have known about salt. They would have known how powerful it was and how dramatic both words. The big shift, the big story, the big narrative here is that Jesus is saying, that all this talk about the role and importance of salt and light now shifts from the nation of Israel to us as his people. That's the incredible thing that is being said here. That's the revolutionary words of the situation. It's fair to say that the nation of Israel had failed him. They had been adulterous, they had prostituted themselves, they had not done what God had called them to. But God is now saying, I have a new people. I have a new chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation to be salt and light. And it's us. It's a huge shift. And they're thinking from a nation to individuals to a community. So again, what does this mean? Basically, there are three metaphors that Jesus uses. <laughs> Two in the Sermon on the Mount and one in Matthew 13 that are to do with small things that have big influence, salt, light, and yeast. All small, but having that massive impact. Too much light blinds you. Too much salt ruins the taste. Too much yeast gives you wind. I can't think of any other way. It blows things up. We can take that out, can't we? You know, <laughs> light is obvious in so many ways. It illuminates a path, a room, helps you understand, pierces the darkness, exposes wrong. The light that we carry is his light in us to do all those things. Salt is somewhat different because it has many ways that it can be used. The main thing to focus on what salt does, it adds taste and it preserves. At the national prayer breakfast, Timothy Keller reminded the then prime minister and leader of the opposition that the church has been a flavorer and a preserver since its inception. He reminded them that the rights of women were first defended by Christians. The Christians were the first to object to slavery in the fourth century AD. 
over nearly a thousand years before Wilberforce. He further added that the 1951 United Nations Geneva Convention on Human Rights was founded in Christian values. He continued that before the National Health Service in the United Kingdom, it was the church that mainly took care of the poor. Today, it is a fact that the biggest provider of youth work in the Western world or wherever Christianity is the dominant religion, that the biggest supplier of youth work is done by the church. And if every country that had a Christian youth work were to work out how much that would cost them, it would come to trillions and trillions of dollars. To this list, we could add that universal education came from the church, as did the right to vote. Where does the safe place of marriage to raise children in a living environment come from? It comes from the church. Caring for the marginalized comes from the church. Where is the foundation of the police force, the prison reform, and much more come from? It comes from the church. Before coming to New Zealand, my work, my work took me to many places, and I went to Pakistan on a, on a number of occasions, and it would always amaze me when I was driving through Lahore or Islamabad or wherever it would have been, to see that the hospitals that were helping everyday Muslims had been founded and funded by Christian missionary organizations, organizations or through Jewish philanthropic generosity and not by the wealth of oil. But now we are finding ourselves in the position here in the Western world that we are being told we don't really need the church and it is becoming more and more marginalized in the corridors of power and sadly education. Our governments, our universities are saying thank you but no thank you without realizing or perhaps choosing to know, ignore that what they have today is mainly due to Judeo-Christian beliefs and the redemptive work of God's people and his church. People who now have no time or place for God are also ignorant of history because of what we have comes mainly through what I've just said. Yes, there have been mistakes and abuses and we need to admit and we need to repent and we need to put things right. But let us not forget that we, the Church of Jesus Christ, as part of this phenomenal body, has been the single most powerful body in the world to bring about equality, fairness, justice, inclusion, and hope for mankind. So when Jesus is talking about salt and light, he is reminding his listeners to live in a society in such a way that we make a difference. Because if we don't, then who will? Musicians, please. (laughs) What would happen if for the next 50 years, the church in New Zealand said, you know, enough is enough, we're gonna work together and we are gonna put our efforts together and we're gonna protect the poor and the vulnerable and go out of our way to help the broken and yet help create community. Where the lost and broken are welcome, where they are helped but yet challenged to redeem their lives through Christ and not just stay where they are. We refuse to put a sticky plaster on things but we decide to make real change that we won't allow the fear of political correctness to dictate what we should or what we shouldn't say. Because I don't think you can be politically correct and be salt and light. I think they are diametrically opposed. 
Here's a clue in my thinking. For 2,000 years, the church has emphasized being gathered. And we welcomed you this morning, and we do, we welcome you to our gathering. But we must also consider what it means not only to be gathered, but to be dispersed and to be scattered. The metaphors of salt and light are about being dispersed, spread across society, and into every aspect of it. Everything we do matters. From the way we treat each other, raise our children, pursue pure relationship, treat our elders, work diligently, how we shop, and so much more. I really believe that God wants us to gather and be effective, but also he wants us to be dispersed, to be scattered, and flavoring as we do when we encounter people. This thing, to be the part of the church of Jesus Christ, to be called to be salt and light is one of the most amazing things that we are privileged to be part of. And it is eternal, but it involves you and me responding to challenges that we find on the Sermon on the Mount. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.